Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. We're going to resume my two-part conversation with director, writer, and composer Stephen Ashley Blake, a good friend of mine who, in our last episode, shared about his upcoming project about the Fisk Jubilee Singers. In this second half, we turn our attention to Stephen as a composer and a musician. Um, I want to pivot now, and uh, with uh, your filmmaking context, your passion for music is evident in the choice of story you have made. Uh, now I want to pivot to your music. So now we're going to pivot to you as a composer and when you and I first met we had some projects we did together in LA in fact the work I did in LA I'm deeply indebted to you the inspiration of your vision your own work in LA as a composer and as a promulgator an impresario of the arts in your community and it's inspiring and I want to explore that part of your artistic side as a composer and your journey and particularly classical music it's easy to be musically interested in our society and find your way into the popular forms. And we've talked about the roots of some of those, but you found your journey into European classical tradition at some point. And you had this whole legacy of gangster rap, as you've mentioned, and very different forms. Let's just say that. I'd love to know that journey. When take us together with you to the time when you first encountered this orchestral music and it made an impression beyond just being noise in the background that somehow it seized your attention. I recall when I was a child, uh, vague memories of my mom uh, performing, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, not performing, playing for my sisters and myself, uh, Beethoven sonatas. I recall my sisters and I making up dances to Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker uh, and I recall my mom loving Bruno Walter uh, in his performances of Beethoven. These are vague memories I have. And so those memories are there. Flash forward, as a young fledgling filmmaker, I'm talking about age 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, I had a mentor by the name of John uh, Clark Matthews, a very, very eclectic um, artist um, who would become a great animator. And John would uh, drive me over to a place called Churchill Films, uh, where I would assist him on a variety of, of projects and we would build sets and things like this. And we would like ravage junkyard, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, junkyards and whatnot for this like, you know, rubble and actually use them to build sets. Anyway, he always listened to very eclectic music, um, very eclectic music. And so that, that's been, that was part of my sort of experience. My, my, my mind was wide open and flash forward again these are sort of fragments of memories which i think congeal um subsequently um i recall that uh, my mom now flash forward I, i've got to be like i don't know 17 18 19 my mom taking me to we have a, a venue here in los angeles called called the rose bowl it's in pasadena and they have these famous flea markets where the Rose Bowl is taken over by vendors. And I remember being there with my mom 
and her buying me a bunch of uh, cassettes. And I remember that those cassettes were like Alfred Brindell performing Haydn. Um, there were Schubert trios, Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony, uh, a, a, a cassette by Van Cliburn called My Favorite Brahms. And um, I was just spellbound by those. Flash forward, I moved into my first apartment in uh, Van Nuys. And up the uh, up Van Nuys Boulevard, there was a, a, a store, uh, a chain called uh, called Fedco. I don't know if they were if that was nat nationwide or whatnot, but uh, anyway, it was called Fedco, and they they had greatly discounted um, uh, items there. And I would go into into Fedco, and they had a section where they had what are called what were called cutout LPs. And the way that would work would be that when the record labels had uh, surpluses of LPs that they couldn't sell. Uh, they would, they would, and these are LPs, so these are, you know, obviously um, albums, um, and they, they would actually cut off one of the corners of the albums to indicate that it's a, um, it's a, um, a, uh, oh, what would the word be? Just, uh, it's a discount item. They didn't want it sold in pristine form, uh, and, and so they would cut it off, and they would allow them, these vendors to sell them at dirt cheap prices for like 99 cents. So I would go to... Fedco and just these are like 99 cents uh, LPs. I would just buy a bunch of them at a time. Didn't know what I was getting into. I would take them back to my apartment, and I would lie on the living room floor and uh, and play them and listen to them. And the works I I um, I would listen to then would be I fell in love with with Tchaikovsky's late symphonies, his fourth, fifth, and sixth symphonies. I remember performed by Mravinsky. Uh, there was uh, the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky. Uh, there was a early Bartok music, Kossuth, a really, really amazing work he wrote as a youth. And so I began listening to this music and then I discovered Dover publications and Dover um, would sell these musical scores at dirt cheap. And so you can get the scores for Brahms' symphonies and Tchaikovsky symphonies. And, and so I would lie on the living room floor and just listen to this music. Meanwhile, in my apartment, I had, a, I had a, um, an upright piano. Um, it, it was actually my mom's piano, but when I moved into the apartment, uh, my mom needed more space. And so since this is when I first moved out of the house into my own apartment, she asked if I could uh, just you know keep the upright piano there. So I said, sure. So the upright piano just sat in one of the rooms and I, uh, I began tinkering at the piano because uh, I'm just really mesmerized by this music and following, teaching myself to read music and following these, these, uh, these, these scores. and marveling at the ability of music to sometimes move and stir, but also sometimes just to engage almost the mind intellectually, because among those um, LPs were a lot of 20th century LPs, which were not romantic, which were not um, sort of emotionally expressive at all. Um, and I was really intrigued by those as well as I am to this day. So anyway, I had this piano and I began tinkering, and I, I actually then bought a, a manuscript, some manuscript paper. I still have all that stuff here in, in my closet. Um, and I just began writing out tunes and themes. I remember that, and, and just uh, and, and I just uh, uh, I just began doing that sort of as an avocation. And and uh, then uh, I began holding these little soirees at my home. I I, I I would meet these musicians, and I would invite them over to perform. So they would perform Mozart and Beethoven in the living room of my apartment and we'd have these great soirees. And I remember Arinsky, I loved. And I began writing music that would also be performed at these soirees. Um, and we just had great, great times doing those things. Um, 
And then I was, uh, so I'm developing, formally I'm developing, um, you know, I'm writing like string quartets, I'm writing, uh, you know, these sorts of trios. And I got commissioned then to, to write music for a TV special that was happening in Missouri. Uh, and, uh, and that just evolved. Uh, and then I, um, but really I, I'm a dilettante. I, I just love doing it. Um, like some like golfing. I, I just, I love writing music. Um, and, um, and then, uh, yeah, I would compose more music, uh, set, uh, texts to music for, uh, orchestra and sometimes for vocal and orchestra. Uh, and, um, yeah, just sort of evolved. Um, and idiomatically, Whereas certainly European music and Russian music were sort of the bases of my, sort of my launch point. Um, you know, I, I definitely am also very much influenced by American music. I, I love, I love Copland. Um, I love Bernstein. Um, and a lot of the European composers that came to the U.S., in the years of World War II, then reinvented themselves as well idiomatically. And some of their musics um, are really, really fantastic. So flash forward again. So there were you know, some concerts uh, we held in town, and I'd, I'd have works performed here and there. And um, uh, and there was a large scale orchestral concert that, that, that a friend and I together collaboratively collaboratively created. Um, and then um, I'm I'm spending a lot of time with the LA Philharmonic. I'm I'm going to their rehearsals talking to the uh, conductors, talking to the composers when they're there, talking to the musicians. Um, you know, the librarian at the LA Philharmonic would, would loan me um, uh, scores uh, for all the works they would perform. I still remember being there for some of uh, the premieres, the first rehearsals of Esapekka Salonen's works, for example, and so got into great conversations there. During the summer, uh, the LA Philharmonic performs at the Hollywood Bowl, and they would allow me to sit right there on stage with them, actually. Um, and, and so that was wonderful. Then you and I met, um, and that was a really interesting encounter. Um, I still remember the exact circumstances. It was at an evening service at church, and uh, the pastor was a guest pastor, asked everyone to turn around and form a small circle. It's a large, large sanctuary, to turn around and form a small circle to just sort of pray with people and form these small prayer circles. And you and Nancy uh, were there, and Sonia and I were there, and you know, here we are, and now we're talking. And then, then our friendship uh, took off quite quickly, um, and we did um, produce uh, some concerts together, uh, wonderful concerts where we, uh, not unlike what we'll, we'll be doing with uh, Steal Away, we not only brought your music to bear and some of my music to bear, but also we put out a call, basically, uh, a, a, a large international call for other composers to submit their music, which would become part of our concert. And we, in fact, our concerts, you know, involve music from, I mean, someone, what, someone flew in from, was it, was it like Scandinavia or something? Wasn't there someone that flew in? I mean, so it was our, literally our gatherings. And we also brought poetry um, uh, into play. You would later bring dance into play, I think. Um, and we created these wonderful gatherings that were really microcosms of the world. Uh, with a myriad of uh, arts and perspectives there musically with respect to the written word um, and, and whatnot. So those were, were, were quite, quite rich. Now, um, you know, I, I haven't composed in a while. One of the amputations I sort of have had to make just to get this film developed has been to 
sort of curtail. I mean, I was just like, even early this morning, I kind of went through and like Schubert's gorgeous G flat uh, impromptu. I just kind of went through even this morning, just, you know, just kind of tinkered at that for a while to bring uh, that music. I still need to refresh myself with the music of great artists, but as far as composing goes, I haven't written a note in some time, but music is very much still a part of my, um, my blood. And when Steal Away is complete, I will definitely uh, take a window of time, a brief sabbatical to be able to sort of cathartically uh, write a number of the orchestral and chamber works that are, that are sort of stirring in my heart and mind. Thank you for the, the sweep of your journey. And what stands out to me is this thread, it ties back to Steal Away at some level, that it, you were not in a cultural context that would have drawn you to this form of music. And in some level, it spoke to you and your creative efforts were simply, they were authentic to who you were in those moments, that this was the channel that your voice needed to, to find. Talk a bit more about that because you would have had, being in LA, it's a music city, you were surrounded by all possible ways that you could pour your musical creativity out in, and you chose this channel, uh, yeah. the, the European tradition at some level, and, and it connected with you. Just, I'd love to dive into that a little more. <laughs> yeah, I've never thought about that, actually. Um, yeah, so there's, there's reception and there's transmission. Receptively, because of my mentor, I think, John Clark Matthews, and because of my, one of my two mentors, and because of my mom's introducing me to these different musics early on, I've always been wide open as far as intake goes. I listen to Appalachian music. I love Celtic music, music from Cape Verde Island. I love uh, South African uh, spirituals. I mean, music's from all over the world. We listen to a lot of Mexican, Colombian, Puerto Rican music. And we listen to, I, I'm a bluegrass fanatic. And, and I'll, I also very much love just very interesting atmospheric music, um, electronic music. I mean, I'm, I'm wide open receptively. So then as far as what I pour myself in, and that includes hip hop, of course, and other things. And um, so then, yeah, so as far as what I transmit then, um, given sort of sort of the breadth of what I'm open to receptively, it's interesting, I, I, I have, I, I never thought of this, but um, there's simply nothing in me that, that would want to express in any other idiom than, um, than the orchestra, or, uh, or chamber ensemble. I, 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 there's just simply nothing in me that would want to do that. I, I, I get deeply, deeply stirred by um, a lot of contemporary music and, and uh, music from various idioms. I was just yesterday for my production team, I was playing a wonderful Celtic song called The Benedy Glen by the uh, dis now disbanded group Janta, D-E-A-N-T-A, -E -E an amazing, and the sublime song that just grips the heart. And yet there's nothing in me that would want to write in that idiom. Um, I, I don't know why that is. I, I, I love um, when I, when I want to express, when there's something for me to express, the orchestra sort of is the instrument for that or the chamber ensemble, but even more the orchestra, but, I, but chamber as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually, I don't know why that is. Uh, you know, I don't know why I, I don't really, you know, uh, I care for mayonnaise, uh, you know, but I actually, I love mustard. So I, um, yeah, but that is interesting because um, when, I, when I would be in, in New York, for example, shooting music videos for like Wu-Tang Clan, which is a, you know, quite, quite a hardcore hip hop group. 
and I'd be in my hotel and, and some of the Wu-Tang artists would be in my hotel room. Um, I, I would tr always try to get a room or, or um, not a hotel room, actually. When, uh, I would try to rent a residence, you know, for, for my time there um, because they would have a piano in there. And so these Wu-Tang artists would actually, you know, marvel that I'm like, you know, kind of playing, you know, in my free time, I'd play Beethoven. I'd always go to the Met when I when, when New York shooting hard, hardcore hip hop on my night off, I would go to the, to the Metropolitan Opera, you know. And so these Wu-Tang artists would marvel at that. And one of the artists who's very well known just actually asked if I could uh, teach him to, to play um, uh, classical music and I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I think I'd be a horrible teacher. I've never, I've never thought about that before. So I, I, I really have no idea. But I do. It's always been an interesting contrast. Um, the things that I've created and uh, against the musical world in which I've worked, uh, my output visually. And yet, and, and on the other hand, I couldn't really see myself producing. Uh, cinematically producing works apart from sort of um, sort of you know pop or mainstream or contemporary uh, popular music as far as my output as a filmmaker goes compositionally it's orchestral and chamber um, but of course I relish also producing music videos for these other very contemporary genres with one exception I remember I don't know if I shared this with you but the the, the great American composer uh, George Crumb, uh, among his many works, he wrote a, a wonderful string quartet, a powerful one called uh, Black Angels. Very, very, uh, very important piece in the 20th century and very, very gripping. This piece struck me so much that I actually wrote him to ask permission to do a music video to his Black Angels, actually. Um, and there's kind of an interesting story behind that. And he actually gave me permission. I was, alas, I was never able to make that music video. So yeah, that's an interesting sort of bifurcation in my, in my life. And I really don't know how to how does it explain it? <laughs> so my next question, uh, or, or maybe a, a thought I'd love to have you respond to, that your voice compositionally goes into music that has a particular kind of complexity to it, the chamber music, and there's an intricacy to the way the music works and, and the various lines and putting all these parts together. And I feel that what you're really doing cinematically, your choice of an epic story, is in a sense choosing the orchestra as a filmmaker. In a sense, the huge cast of characters, the coordination of all the parts, the precision it requires, but also the magnitude of the story you want to tell feels like a symphony. What do you think? You know what, you are, that's interesting. I've never thought about that either. Um, you are so right about that. Just as I love um, the orchestra um, in film, I, I really have, and I have known this about myself, but I've never sort of thought it through the way you have. Um, I've, I've never, I really have no interest in telling small stories. One of the things that absolutely uh, gripped me about this story is that it's an it's epic and sweet. It is absolutely epic and sweet. Um, this will be like a Schindler's List, but it's actually got it's it's got a vast cast, uh, a very very vast cast. It, it, again, it's an epic story. It spans two you know uh, it's it, it spans two countries, actually more than two countries. Uh, it's got a multitude of themes that that interlace. There are themes of faith. There are themes of freedom. There are themes of of politics. Um, of, of just uh, and also the all the human stories that course through this and the characters themselves all. 
um, there are a panoply of, 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 of human journeys as expressed through the respective characters. Each character in the story, uh, uh, nearly all of them, nearly everyone has an arc. And, and these characters are, if you will, sorts of emblems of people like you and me and our uh, friends and family and people we know about that are going through their journeys. So, and these journeys are very different from each other. They touch on things ranging from their humorous things. There, there are suicidal thoughts in, in, at, at some of the darkest moments there and, and, and everything in between. And uh, of course, uh, I mean, it is, and that is something that absolutely riveted me from the very beginning and gripped me. It, this film is absolutely like a grand symphony. Mahler had a symphony called, you know, that's called the Symphony of a Thousand. And this is very much like that. In fact, that's one of the reasons that it took me eight years and over 130 drafts of the script to really get to a point where everything has sort of congealed and you know, in just the right way, um, and absolutely, that is one of my joys. And I can't wait to, uh, as my team knows, we have a great production team already on board uh, that are already working and and, uh, and developing this project. Uh, we are even more excited now as we look to bring on our production designer, our costumer, and and in in, in each of these departments, costume design, production design, um, the editing, which will come later, of course, and the cinematography. Each of these will be, uh, just as the characters have arcs, each of these departments will be retelling or simultaneously telling uh, this story, contributing to the unfolding of the story in their own unique and in a sense discreet way. With these, oh my, oh, and the other of course element is the fact that this is a timeless story. So this story is not treated in a strictly literalistic way, you know, like looking back then and seeing how things literalistically happen as if you were watching a documentary. No, this is actually part history, but it's part allegory as well. The story has been amplified and magnified uh, to reflect the sort of universal and timeless aspect of the quest of these characters. We literally have embedded lyrics from Tupac Shakur verbatim into the story. 20th century figures and narratives figure into the story. Uh, and, and so again, uh, and that will continue to play out through costume design, production design, cinematography. So that is not only incredibly riveting to me, and not only am I constantly just ref uh, in a refreshed way, constantly excited about this, but this is only the beginning. As we bring on these department heads, um, this is going to go exponential. And these uh, these commissions to these different departments are going to result in something that is even far more amplified, far richer, far more challenging in a good way, in an exciting way. And it, it, it will be, again, a, a sort of fasten your seatbelts kind of a thing. Uh, so we're excited about that. Yeah, so this is a symphony. Uh, and the score will be sort of a symphony within a symphony, if you will. In fact, every department, the journey of the story cinematically, the journey of the story with respect to costuming, the journey of the story with respect to the performances of the actors in their respective roles are going to be symphonies within the great symphony. So absolutely, I, I'm, I'm stoked. I mean, this, this project just hurls me, flings me out of bed uh, very, very early every morning with a fervor and an excitement um, that I can hardly contain. It, it uh, takes that kind of passion, energy, and the amount of work you've already put in to bring something of the scale together. And, and 
as you talk about the symphony as, as really your musical voice has these similar attributes and, and the idea of orchestration for listeners, since this is a music podcast, I'll tether it back to some musical hooks here that really that's what uh, a composer is doing when they're orchestrating is they're taking 20 or 30 independent lines of music and figuring out how they weave together at the right time and have the gathered effect. You're now doing that across multiple media, as you mentioned. Um, but to come back then, you're, you're orchestrating a, a lot of these parallel threads and it's to tell a big story. That makes me think of a figure, a historical classical figure, who I think had a very similar modus operandi, which is Richard Wagner. Music wasn't enough to contain the stories he wanted to tell. And whatever his artistic legacy, and it's substantial, he's a controversial figure for some, and rightly so, but his artistic impulse was grand. Have you ever seen in him or your knowledge of what he did with the Gesamtkunstwerk and the, the all-encompassing art, does that resonate with you at all? Very much so, yeah. By the way, one of the pieces I constantly loop is the immolation scene um, from Brunhilde. Uh, um, absolutely. Uh, Wagner, and of course, everyone was grappling with this phenomenon called Wagner in the 19th century. I mean, you know, what, Tchaikovsky himself, before he wrote his Francesca de Rimini, he, he went to see... Um, uh, Wagner's works and was 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 astonished and and you know it, it, and Wagner of course uses these motifs obviously in lieu of melody and just he revolutionized music he was a different kind of a you know the the conventional idiom uh, uh, idioms and conventions couldn't contain what he what he had he was a very divisive uh, figure he proved to be a divisive figure these camps built pro and con uh, around him. Um, absolutely, I, I think about Wagner, um, and one of the one of the key things that I think is vital, uh, I think, as an artist, and this goes back to Wagner and, and many other composers, I think as well. Uh, I, I think this has been the case with um, uh, uh, Alvanus on one hand, more 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 recently, um, and um, I think this has been the case. I, I think this was the case. Um, I, I could name many others that giving yourself permission compositionally to be and to give birth to, to give life to what wants to emerge from you. Um, it's interesting that most, in my estimation, most music that's written, like most you know, chairs that are designed and most homes that are designed are, are not terribly memorable. They may have their 15 minutes of fame, but some of the most exciting musics, um, you know, Stravinsky, his, his um, evolution, I was just watching um, the, uh, an amazing performance of his Firebird. You know, he, he, he wrote works like the Firebird and Petrushka, et cetera, in early on, very, very accessible works, brilliant works. But then he, but then there was a transition with the Rite of Spring, right? There is, there's a, there, there's something else that wanted to emerge. Schoenberg, same thing uh, in a different sort of a way, but certainly Wagner um, and, you know, Wagner's earlier, earlier works are kind of unremarkable. You know, he, he wrote a symphony. I think it maybe was in C major. I don't recall exactly, but, but his early, but something else wanted to, to emerge and he gave birth to that. And yes, I think about Wagner. To me, Wagner is an, is an emblem of what an artist's journey, what a composer's journey should be. It's almost unleashing, uh, you know, uh, the orchestra unleashed is, is one of your great 
conceptions. It's really unleashing that artist to move forward. Um, and I think about Wagner. And um, so, yeah, I mean, when you, when you say the name Wagner, again, a, a universe opens up and I really hardly know where to begin addressing that. But um, absolutely, motifs, um, themes, um, melodies are... You, know, you have a melody and you know melody is contained it is what it is and you can vary it up you can have themes and variations but melodies i think this may be controversial but but you know but there's a certain melodies sort of are self-limiting in a sense if you go you can vary that up but you sort of set it there you sort of you sort of set it and again you know most musics i would say certainly 19th century and you know, have a theme and they and they develop and that's great. But when you have a motif, something something that's that's more fragmented, it doesn't have a sense of containment. And so therefore I think that it lends itself more to an explosive uh treatment. I think the same thing is true in fine art. Beautifully, um, when you move into you know post-Civil War art, in fact, even art from the early 20th century, maybe early, you know, modernism. In, the, in, the, in fine art, there's a debate about when modernism begins. But in contemporary music, you know, if you paint a painting of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a house or of a portrait, you know, there's the painting. You're seeing it all. But when you, a lot of painters paint geometric shapes, they, they're interested in fragments very often. They're interested in these other things, which then pull you into that experience of viewing it because it hasn't settle the matter for you. It invites you to explore the matter sort of within its sphere. And I think Wagner was, was really instrumental in that. In fact, Wagner affected Tchaikovsky. When Tchaikovsky would write Francesca de Rimini, um, that went into, although Tchaikovsky couldn't really abide Wagner. <laughs> that was really interesting, these, these divisions, or Brahms for that matter. Um, but it affected him. So yeah, it, 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 pardon me that my thoughts aren't really totally cohesive here i just i just I'm, i find myself in the midst of this universe of considerations and really don't know where to go <laughs> well i think uh what i take away the the parallels oddly between wagner's exploration of music and your own although your your palette has expressed on the screen the that orchestral tradition the orchestral scope well wagner was largely self-instructed he found his way into the music he wasn't cultivated as a, a child prodigy at all and he always veered directly toward dramatic presentations that he would write his own librettos i i think the parallels are are rather striking uh for a modern day wagner here with your story and all the elements of it and um i i i, I want to come back and and you talk about when Steal Away is done, you may find voice again as a composer and just kind of close out with a last thought. I know that's out in the future. That's a piece of work. But if you had to guess today what that might look like, is there something gestating that may find flower there? Absolutely. I have my, my, um, my sketches. I have sketchbooks and are replete with themes and motifs um, that I so look, and I have again, and I've, I've sort of been liberated even by the process of developing Steel Away, uh, I, I see some very large scale orchestral and choral orchestral and, you know, um, solo choral orchestral scores. Um, and these will certainly, from a, a, a tonality perspective, 
probably not be very traditional. Um, and I very much am, and, and I've, I have really become ever more enamored in recent years of just 20th century idioms, which don't center on melody, some are bereft of melody altogether. And likewise, in the artistic world, I love, um, I love abstraction in fine art as well. Uh, and uh, in fact, I'm sort of a gallery and an art fair junkie. And so I'm, I'm fairly sort of um, been consumed with, with the, the with abstraction in general. And that will, I think, inform my music uh, in a way that uh, it has never before. And so I'm expecting uh, that my music will involve abstraction. Uh, and at the same time, I love the interaction. You know, I love the fact that even in physical reality, you know, we have sort of a Newtonian we live in a Newtonian solar system and, 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 and existence. There's predictability, you know, the sun, we can predict the sun's rising time and setting time, so to speak, you know, with great accuracy, you know, well, well in advance, et cetera. There's a great predictability. And yet in the quantum world, that is completely unpredictable. In fact, quantum uncertainty is reality, uncertainty, chaos, at the micro level, being constituents of order. And scientists still trying to wrap their heads around that. I love the idea of, of randomness, of fragmentation, of um, uh, abstraction. And yet I also love uh, journeys, appreciable journeys. Um, and unfoldings and sort of, if you will, narrative unfoldings as well. I, 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 I love melody um, and as well and motifs. And so I see a coming together then of these elements um, in a way that I have never engaged before. Um, so the jury's gonna be out. Part of the joy of my, and probably the exasperation as well of my composing in the future is, is gonna be the maddening, but probably unparalleled, um, uh, satisfying experience of discovery as I myself sort of wend my way through these, uh, these, these paradigms. So I'm looking forward myself to seeing what will come. I know one thing, I will be completely faithful to, the, to my muse and, I, and, and to what wants to happen. Um, very excited about that. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. And I think that the experience of, of Steal Away as well which again, among other things, is a great amalgam of different considerations of things from different epochs and 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 spheres. Um, I'm looking forward then to having a, almost a parallel experience in the development of of the orchestral works that I will uh, write in the future. Well, we look forward to that, and I will be watching with great interest the development both of Steal Away and then your compositional work as well. And we'll be revisiting that topic in the future. So with that, I'll. Uh, bring our conversation to a close. I want to thank you, Steve, for being with me on the Anachronism Podcast. Uh, this is probably a couple episodes, so we'll let our listeners enjoy the richness of what you've shared, and I wish you all the best of success in the days ahead, and I will look forward to sharing uh, the ways that our listeners can maybe be participants. Well, thanks so much. Great to be here, Gustav. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Take care. Okay. And that concludes my conversation with Stephen Blake, composer, filmmaker. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of his project, Steal Away. I do want to encourage you to keep your eyes open on news 
and visit his website. It'll be in the show notes. And do support the project if you have a heart for healing some of the long history of racial tensions in the U.S., in this world, this is a great place to put your energy and maybe even your money. So thanks for joining me for this episode, uh, this special two-part series with Stephen Blake. I hope you have enjoyed it, and I look forward to having you join me next time on the Anachronism Podcast.